0: Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking with Bob Hallman. Bob is a principal at Deloitte Consulting where he is a leader in Deloitte's power, utilities and renewables sector. Bob has four children at Davidson Day and is one of the newest members of our board of trustees where he chairs our board technology committee. So Bob, thank you so much for being here this morning. Pete, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And to start us off, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like?
1: My father was with IBM, which used to stand for I've been moved. So... I was born in upstate New York, but we lived in nine different places before I ended up in college. So all over the eastern seaboard and the deep south. But I'd like to say upstate New York. So where are
0: the other places that you lived?
1: Sure. Uh, Connecticut, Raleigh, Cocoa Beach, Florida, New Orleans, Huntsville. And how do you think that changed you moving around so much? So I think I got very good at meeting people making new friends and settling into a place pretty quickly. So I can walk into any room and and find somebody to talk to. But it became quite a challenge, I think, for me to kind of
0: put down longstanding roots. So then you went to William & Mary for college? I did, from upstate.
1: And then my dad got transferred one last time to Virginia, Manassas, Virginia. So I ended up in state in Virginia.
0: And what are some of your fondest memories of school and what were some of the challenges? Yeah, I'm a pleaser.
1: So I liked getting good grades. I liked doing projects and making my teachers proud, and my parents proud and all those things. I think some of the biggest challenges for me were social in nature. So never feeling part of the in group. I would always find a group because I was good at that, but it probably wasn't the in group or even within my group, I might not have been the guy or the gal, right? So I think I always felt a little bit on the outside.
0: And what was the longest period of time you stayed anywhere? I think our
1: longest stint was three and a half years. I think high school, junior high and high school, we'll call it, were like a couple of three-year stints. And then I ended back in upstate where I had been born for my last two years, which was kind of cool, kind of
0: closing the loop, you know. And then when you went to college, suddenly you're in a situation where you know you're going to be there for four years. Yep. What was that like trying to sort of put down roots and go, hey, I'm going to be here for a while? It was subconscious.
1: I think I probably held back a bit. So that said, I jumped right into the whole Greek scene, joined a fraternity. I almost didn't go to Wayman Berry because I thought that was the in crowd. It was too Greek for me. And just happenstance, family friend went there and convinced me to go. So I went and within weeks I was a member of that very scene and you know wore my colors proudly all four years, and, and, but never probably allowed myself to be vulnerable with that group and with those guys until after I graduated. And what sort of things did you hold back? Well, I, I think my defense mechanism for feeling vulnerable has always been to kind of fall back on my intelligence, fall back on my smarts, get a little righteous, get up, <laughs> on my, get up on my soapbox, right? So, you know, one of the books I read in college that I then just kind of espoused was Atlas Shrugged, and so if you know anything about Ayn Rand's philosophy, that was a bit over the top, I think, for <laughs> a lot of my a lot of my fraternity brothers and. And Atlas Rugged is all about competence. So those that are competent deserve to rule the world. And if you weren't, get out of the way. And I probably kind of wore that on my sleeve too much.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And we have people who attend the school, parents who listen to this, who aren't as familiar with the Greek scene. How do you get involved once you go to college? I think it differs slightly by school. Okay somewhat by
1: fraternity or sorority. And it's definitely different between fraternities and sororities. How it was for me was I got invited to what they used to call a smoker or a rush party. Mm -hmm. And it was simply inviting freshman guys and girls to meet the fraternity brothers. And it was more of an excuse to party, really, for both sides, right? But it was a means by which people got to know you and you them. And again, I was not going to join the system, but my family friend was a member of this fraternity, and he didn't strike me as a Greek guy. And he says, just come by the party. He really had to just almost drag me out of my room. And I was hooked, (laughs) right? you go to all the several different fraternities and kind of get to know them and decide where you'd like to join. And at certain points, you'll express interest. They'll start expressing some interest and then they'll extend you invitations to join. So I ended up joining the fraternity he was a member of. And then you go through some rites of passage and things. not Nothing like you hear about or see mm-hmm. in the movies, but ours was community service oriented. And are you still friends with those people today? Oh, yeah. Golf with them every year, go to homecoming. So William & Mary... People return every year, regardless of, you know, whether it's a milestone year or your 10th or your 20th. People go every year. There's a group of guys that has just rallied my class and those around that class for golf two, three times a year. And those guys are thick as thieves. And again, I'm not quite on the inside of that group, but I join them from time to time.
0: What was the first job you ever had?
1: So, I used to do a lot of odd jobs and mowing lawns and stuff, so I won't count those. I dug holes for trees in my neighborhood in upstate, which upstate New York is rock <laughs> city, so two bucks a hole. I remember that. Three by three by three, and uh, I make good money, but my first real job was as a janitor in my own high school. Okay. So, they used to hire three students part-time to augment the, the janitorial staff. I worked in my own high school, which some people go, you know. Well, how was that? It's actually pretty fun, yeah, to show up after a football game on a Sunday morning and help clean up everything, and then we would make ourselves breakfast in the home ec room and drive your dad's car around the track and things like. (laughs) Go swimming. It was also my introduction to working with people older than than I. Right. So these guys were, you know, blue collar. It was 1970s. Uh, You know, I learned a lot in the janitorial room. It was a good job.
0: It's such a valuable thing to do, and I, I think yeah. it's happening less and less, is working through high school. My father worked on horse racing tracks and oh, yeah. and in yeah. sort of gambling game. And so growing up, every Saturday night, I worked at the dog racing track. And sure. so I had a couple of different roles there. One was putting up the odds from the tracks that were <laughs> elsewhere. This is pre-internet, right? They were sort of, I think, handed to me. I had to write them on the board and change them. Others was sort of at the gate. And I also learned for a period of time how to do the photo finish, right? Like wrap oh, yeah. the photo paper around, press the button at the right time. And yeah. we had to develop it and see who won. But it was a great experience. And also working with people, like you said, who were older, who went to other schools yeah. and everything. So fast forwarding, what led your family to Davidson Day? My daughter, okay.
1: <laughs> Kayla graduated in, I've got to get this right, don't I, 2013. okay, And she had expressed an interest to get out from her brother's shadow. They were both at Southlake Christian. And when he graduated, she asked to join a close friend of hers, Janine Grabowski here. And we said, okay. Under the stipulation though, that she'd be more involved and really throw herself into the school. And she did. And really did. So it was a great experience for her and it was a great experience for us. And that was our introduction at the time. And how many children do you have? Six in total. So a couple uh, older and then four currently in school here. And what are their names sequentially? Yeah, sequentially Hunter, Jessica, Colin, and Reagan, two seniors, two sophomores. And those that know our family know we're a blended family. And again, we had to pivot last year when the pandemic hit and we were in three different schools at the time, which was a bit chaotic. Yeah. Reagan was the only one that was at, at Davidson Day, and, and and the way that the school handled the situation was attractive to the other three and to us, and, and we put some long thought into it and, you know, a lot of people to be consulted and, and all of the parents involved in the decision and, and all the kids, so it was a bit of a navigation, but I think, I think we ended up in the right place and they seemed to be thriving. How did you manage three different schools? That would have been challenging. Three different schools and... At one point, they were on four different soccer teams. And then there were times where certain sports would overlap, right? So it'd be the end of soccer, beginning of basketball. On one weekend, we had 17 events to attend. <laughs> right, right. We didn't make all seven. We probably came close to 12 or 13, but it was chaos. So this has helped quite a bit, right? I can imagine
0: yeah. just the logistics of that.
1: You know, we make it clear their job is school, mm-hmm. right? Do that and do that well. Everything else is ancillary. But I do expect you to be involved or engaged or somehow, somewhere, whether that's the school, a sport, shows, a job, community service, we don't care, but Mm -hmm. do something. And I think some kids are suited to, to work, others are suited for athletics, you know, you name it.
0: appreciate you accepting the offer to serve on the board what inspired you to become a trustee
1: well i am nearing retirement mandatory unfortunately so i don't know what that means yet it probably doesn't mean i'm not working but my firm deloitte promotes and encourages one to seek board positions to look beyond deloitte so that kind of hit me you know in the last year or so at the same time as all four ended up here <laughs> right and there's a book that i've grown fond of called halftime by Bob Buford, and it speaks to redoing your game plan at halftime and kind of, whereas the first half of your life is focused on success. Maybe you start shifting that towards significance and having an impact. So I've kind of carried that philosophy since I read the book uh, a while ago and I thought these kind of three things converged and so it seemed to me a perfect time to give it a run. And what does significance mean to you? Well, I think I'm figuring that out. It means different things to different mm. people, just like success means different things to yeah. different people. So, you know, to some, it's how much money do you have, what your title is, or how big your family is. And I think significance for me traditionally has been how well our kids doing and how well my spouse is doing. And so it has, you know, traditionally been focused on the family. And as they become more and more independent, I feel like c- I can and should turn that whatever value and impact I
0: can have outwards. It's interesting to think about what significance means, because often you are got a busy job, you know, your family, kids, mm-hmm. often it just feels like getting through the day, right? Making right. sure everyone needs to be where they need to be, that you're doing everything you need to do at work. For me, staying in touch with my family, who's in Australia remembering people's birthdays on the right day because of the time difference and sort of zooming out a little bit to think what does significance mean. Yeah, it's an important thing to do. The book's called Halftime.
1: Something about changing your game plan from success to significance. Good coaches can do that. They can shift the momentum over halftime, right? It spoke to me as a at the time. I think I read it when I was 45 or nearing 50, right? Mm -hmm. And you start to feel this nagging, like, all right, all this stuff I have and all these things have done great, but it doesn't mean... much to me, right? And his point being, halftime can be truly halftime 20 minutes or 10 minutes for our soccer team, right? It can take years for others, a period of time where you reconsider what what you mean. It is a faith-based book. So this gentleman, and the final theme was, don't make the mistake that many do of assuming that what, what made you successful can't allow you to be significant. So don't just toss everything and have a true midlife crisis. So he was a successful, if I call right, he would take over distressed cable TV companies. So he was kind of a turnaround artist, mm-hmm. if you will, right? And as he found more and more faith, he began helping troubled Catholic parishes turn themselves around from a business perspective. And that became his calling of sorts. So it was like taking one set of skills and just reapplying it in a different way that had you know, more significance.
0: Jumping back again a, a little bit is you mentioned that you have mandatory retirement. Can you talk uh, a little bit about that? Yeah,
1: yeah. So I'm a, a partner in the firm. Most partnerships have some stipulation around mandatory retirement and, mm-hmm. and for a couple of different reasons. One, they they need to kind of return the shares or the units or the partner shares back to the pool for the younger partners to, mm-hmm. to get. But they also don't want a, let's call it a, a jaded, old, tired audit partner sitting on top of an audit, make a mistake. So I, you know, most of the firms have this mandatory retirement requirement. Ours happens to be 62. Okay. So
0: that's facing us. You mentioned your principal mm-hmm. at Deloitte. What was the path that led you to this point in your career?
1: Yeah, so I, in high school, was drawn to computer science and, and, and logic and, and that kind of thing. So I ended up majoring in that. William Mary's, at the time, focus within that department was... Go do more computer science. Go get your master's, then go PhD or go work at NASA right down the road. Really encouraged research and the academic side, which was fine for most. But I remember our graduating class of 40 in the Comps High school, three of us kind of bucked the trend because it just didn't feel right. And we stumbled onto this thing called management consulting Mm -hmm. back then. It wasn't near as popular on the IT side. There were plenty of management consultants, right, looking at business processes and strategy, so Bain and Boston Consulting and so on. But the IT side of it was just starting. And so three of us interviewed and got positions at respectively AMS, Arthur Anderson, and then I went with Pricewaterhouse at the time. I just liked the balance of people engagement and technology. And so that started my journey to help clients understand technology to help the business more effectively articulate their requirements to the technology side of the same client than for us to be the bridge. So I've always been kind of an integrator and a bridge mm-hmm. between, we'll call it the business and technology. When did you start working for Deloitte? So Deloitte was just eight years ago. So I started with PW in 82. PW merged with Coopers in 98. By that point I'd been admitted to the partnership at Pricewaterhouse. Then we all decided we needed to bust up the firms and the consulting arms had to be separated from the audit side for lots of reasons. We sold ourselves to IBM, which I thought was fitting given my dad (laughs) had spent 30 years at Plus at IBM and ended up back at IBM for 10, but got to a point where the partnership we had at Pricewaterhouse and PwC was really special and just kind of partnerships operate differently than public companies. You can take a different perspective and a longer term perspective as a partnership, so... I decided to leave IBM and rejoin a, a partnership.
0: And that was Deloitte. So you've worked in the utility space for a number of years. How has that space evolved and how do you see it changing in the future? Yeah, yeah. So I, I began
1: focusing on the uh, primarily electric utility, a little bit gas, in 2009. The industry's been around a long time. <laughs> it's a fairly defined model for the larger, when you think of the utilities, the Duke energies of the world it's a fairly defined model with a pretty simple mission, right? You and I expect the lights to come on when you hit the switch, and we all expect that nobody gets killed. You know, so safety is a big focus point, and we expect our electricity, our gas, our water, whatever at reasonable rates. And so the whole industry is kind of built on that on, on those three tenets and you know, a defined rate of return. They spend capital. That's good. They go to the utility commissions and get a you know that guaranteed rate of return that gets built into our rates and so on and so on. That's changing dramatically, right? And yeah, decarbonization and the you know green new deal. There's fundamental shifts occurring in the industry. There are certain markets that have that are now open, right? They used to enjoy kind of a monopoly. That is no longer the case in certain markets. So they've had to deal with competition and. That is occurring at breakneck speed at this point. And then I think exacerbated by or helped along by decarb. There's a lot of emphasis on that. So if you think about it, the kinds of investments these utilities have had to make to produce power require a return period of 30, 40 years. They're kind of stuck, right? They've got assets out there that will be what they call overhanging for years and years if the regulators and commissions and government cannot figure out how to help them recover all of that. They were going to recover it through rates for 40 years. Can't do that now. That's going to differ. So we're in the business of helping them try to figure that out. How do you reduce those costs? What can you do with some of those stranded assets? How do you deal with new entrants into one's market? It's pretty interesting.
0: When something is that size, like a utility company, how do you begin to map out change? It seems just so enormous.
1: Yeah, it can be daunting. Some utilities are stuck that way. You know, if you look at it, as everything must change all at the same time, mm-hmm. nothing's going to change yeah. ever, right? So you've got to start in certain places. So in fact, I was with a what we call a muni, a municipal utility, which is structured a little differently than a investor-owned, but just last week with the chief transformation officer, they would like to undertake a broad-scale transformation. And there are certain elements of the company that are not ready for that, very much in opposition. There are others that are hungry for it. So as we talked with her about how we would help, might help them do this, right? It was like, go find somebody with a real business problem, but also with the you know penchant for change, mm-hmm. or at least they're open to it. And sometimes you'll build it and others will come. The people that were resistant, like, I want some of that. Other times it has to come from the top. I mean, it really varies by utility and by client, which is one of the reasons I like consulting. Every client's different. There's individuals, there's people sitting there, Mm -hmm. right? And it kind of goes back to my ability, but I think also my interest in kind of understanding what makes people tick, right, In, in the room. So it was a good session last week with the CTO and eight of her direct reports, first time they'd been in person together in 14 months. And we were facilitating the session. So you could watch the dynamics between them. That part was fascinating to me.
0: Change in organizations is always hard, mm-hmm. right? If, no, mm-hmm. no matter, changing a family is hard. Change personally is hard, right? How do you help guide companies through change initiatives?
1: There are methods around change management. And in fact, that was a big part of our discussion. We had entitled this whole thing digital transformation, but there's like 23 traits of an organization it just happened to coincidentally be the same <laughs> chromosomes, right, that we've got. So we called it digital DNA and... and you can survey through structured means, kind of determine the organization's readiness across each of these traits, their readiness for change. And then you pinpoint four or five of those traits that are, you know, they've got the biggest gap between where they are where they want to be, and you start focusing on those behaviors. And there are methods to help people understand their behaviors and the way they're thinking, all while with big technology projects going along. Mm-hmm. So it's an important track of the way we approach projects that introduce change at this point in my career, I know a little bit about a lot of things. There are very few things I know a lot about, and I kind of enjoy that. I get to play across all these different areas and these different clients, and one fun part of the job is finding the person that would know the answer to that, right? And have them there, which we did, and then let them rip. But also, as that expert comes in, helping them understand more about what I've heard from the client and coaching them before the day. So there were 12 of us facilitating this session About seven or eight on-site, four or five off, coming from 12 different practice areas, right? Wow. And we probably spent, for every hour of that day, we probably spent seven or eight. It's not unlike teaching, seven or eight in prep. So, you know, the fun part and also sometimes the frustrating part is continuing to coach, herd my own cats, Mm -hmm. right? And coach them in what's going to have impact that day with that client. The job has helped me not rush to answer a question. That's always what everybody wants to do. Mm-hmm. Now, again, my kids, my wife, will, Aaron will tell you, you're already answering a question I'm not even asking. So I think one thing I've gotten better at is slowing down a little bit, right? Because my mind's going so yeah. But I definitely have to slow down when it's a topic I know nothing about.
0: You've shared with me that you are a client relationship professional. What are the keys to creating lasting relationships with clients? A couple of themes, I think. One is to be
1: personally curious. Understanding the person, you know, not just the function and the business, and, you know, what's your technical problem you're trying to solve and really trying to get behind, what are you trying to make happen, I think is critical to establishing a relationship. Somehow instilling trust. Mm-hmm. So being trustworthy and you have to earn that. So you know, say what you mean, do what you say, be willing to say, I messed up. I find sharing personal stories and personal background helps quite a bit. So I know there's a lot of ways to advance a relationship. but it comes down to person to person.
0: What about when people might have their guard up? You're coming in as these experts and they don't necessarily want to hear what you have to say. Is it the same sort of things that you're doing? It is.
1: And I've had plenty of those, right? <laughs> I tell the story now. One client had two guys named Dennis. One was like warm, open, but ended up not ever buying anything. One was just this curmudgeony old guy we convinced a few of them to go out to dinner with us or something. I ended up next to the curmudgeony guy and I was like, oh, this is going to be a horrible night. Somehow I was talking about my kids. I said, yeah, I can't get one of them to to listen, to do stuff. And he goes, you can't get people to do anything. You can stop them from doing stuff though. He goes, you need the no system. And my kids are going to hate this when they hear this. (laughs) And I'm like, what's the no system? And So the way he described it was, I think he was divorced and his daughter was living with him and she wouldn't do the dishes and he even got more and more angry. And so finally he got a a pad of post-its and just wrote no on, on let's say the top 10. And the next night, you know, she gets, gets, stands up from dinner and he goes, Hey, you need to do your dishes. And she starts to walk away and she said no or something like that. And he just walks up calmly before she leaves the room and takes this post-it pad, bam, 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 just nails it right into the drywall. (laughs) And he puts up another empty nail next to it. Bam, bam. She's looking at him like, what are you doing? And he just takes the top no and put it over on the empty nail and sat back down. Next night, same thing. And about a week later, you know, now things are warm and fuzzy. And she goes, hey, I, I, I'm going to go to the mall. And he goes, actually, I'm going to use one of my nose And he goes to the <laughs> empty nail, you can't have the car. And he's catching her at a moment when the relationship is warm, right? There's no Uh tension as opposed to after dinner when there's been tension every night. Yeah. She goes, that's not fair. It has nothing to do with, he goes, with what? She goes, my dishes, (laughs) right? (laughs) And he goes, doesn't have to. That was the only time he moved the post-it. But he left those up there for like the next three years in the kitchen, right? So I told that story and it's become a joke in the family. But from that point forward, if somebody didn't like your turn to do whatever and they're like, is that a no? When you realize, again, that you can't make them do something, yeah, then stop, maybe don't stop trying, but do make it clear to them that there are consequences. May not happen on the endless spot, yeah. and it may not be totally related, but there will be consequences.
0: I'd like to shift now into asking questions about questions. So in a Harvard Business Review article titled The Surprising Power of Questions, the authors wrote, questions and thoughtful answers foster smoother and more effective interactions. They strengthen rapport and trust and lead groups towards discovery. As a consultant, how do you leverage questions to help your clients?
1: Asking questions instills trust. They understand that you have an interest in something they have to say, if you give them space to answer. Right? hmm and I also think if you ask questions that make it clear you've heard the prior questions or the prior statements, they kind of keep tying things back to something they said or somebody else said, again, it shows you're listening. There's a lot of value and a lot of impact in that. So I think a lot of people feel like they are not heard. Mm-hmm. Just the process of asking questions myself, particularly if you just are thoughtful about it and as quick as I am in to jump and you know, answer something, I, I do think I kind of pace myself depending on the, on the conversation. When you demonstrate true empathy and curiosity, it starts to open things up. And then not being afraid to tell a story about yourself, tie it back to something personal. And the more you
0: show of yourself,
1: man, they will open up quick.
0: And how did you develop that skill? Was it something that you were deliberately taught as you became a consultant?
1: No, I, I think I told you early on as an outcome, I think, of all the moving. My, so my ability to meet people is pretty high. My openness, though, to being having warm relationships, that was probably pretty low, mm. right? Just because I didn't want to get hurt. Cause I, why yeah. make a friend if you're going to be moving away in six months? So you, you only let yourself get so close. So fast forward, took that all the way through college, probably got a little better, a little more open, but no, I was moving on to a job and then started my career. And I remember one of my first projects, I was in a special IT boot camp at Waterhouse, 25 of us handpicked, like one from each major office across the country. So I was the one from Washington, DC. And we became fast friends. Six months, we were in training together. 22 of them ended up on the same project in Juneau, Alaska, for the state of Alaska. My project was Puerto Rico. <laughs> I was jealous. Look at this, because I was not with my 22 friends. Yeah. They were jealous because they were in Juneau, Alaska. Yeah. And I was in a condo on the beach. And in fact, it got so bad, I got close to being homesick. I had a, I would call it an emotional breakdown mm. in Puerto Rico. Thankfully, the project ended prematurely and I went home, but I realized that I needed closer friends than I'd ever allowed. And so I, it shifted something in me. And I i, I won't say overnight, but I, I think it became a much better listener, a much better friend. It opened up something in me that I think had always been there, but I'd always had that protective wall, right? And I remember talking to my folks about it at the time. I was like, that was a big shift for me when I got back. I'm not going to take things for granted. I'm not going to take friends for granted. I'm not going to get up on my high horse, even if I know I'm right. <laughs> right? I might do that in a different way. And there was a noticeable change, I think, in my friendships that were you know existing and new, a noticeable change at work. It was a defining moment for me. And you're
0: about 23, 24, I'm guessing? I was like that. 23. That's an amazing insight to have at that yeah. age. I once read that a quote that said, what gives travel its value is fear, right? because things are so different, like mm. you're out of your comfort zone. I moved to England when I was 18, and it was early 90s and no internet, you know, long way from family, friends, mm-hmm. and it's a 24-hour flight to the UK, like you feel like you're on a different planet. And... It's incredible when I think back on it, how much it shifted the way I thought about things because I was away from my family, I was away from my friends, I was away from anything that I'd, I'd sort of ever known before. I've been talking to my eldest daughter, she's an Australian citizen, about potentially going to Australia for college, right? One mm. It's cheaper, mm-hmm. but you have family there. You, I mean, it's, she's only yeah. 11, but, but also <laughs> just to put her in that environment where you're a, a long way from everything that you know. Because it was so impactful for me. It's interesting hearing your story. It's, it's felt similar in terms of like you're away from your friends. You're sort of by yourself. Even though the, it was beautiful where you were, it creates a clarity. Like if you'd gone to Juno with all your friends, you probably wouldn't have had that experience. I don't experience. think so. Yeah. Right. Right. It really seemed right. to have shaped who you were, who you are now and, and, and going forward. On, on a personal level. Yeah. It really did. Right.
1: The value of travel is fear. That's interesting. Anywhere I go, I like just getting to know the place. Mm-hmm. So I've had clients in some pretty interesting places and, and some that you would argue are like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> you know, what did you think about that town? Every place yeah. has a history. Oh, I always yeah. like to get to know all the locals and try to understand, all right, what made this place?
0: Sometimes it's really challenging, like when you go to a new city or a new town or you're spending time in another country and you're sort of like bumbling around. But sometimes you see very clearly how great it is that you're every day and the uh, life yeah. that you're living. and
1: You do learn to appreciate yeah. some degree of normalcy and, you know, kind of the sameness yeah. of being home, right? Yeah. And so people take for granted. I just long sometimes to not travel yeah. right? after doing it for decades. Right? Yeah.
0: Before we move into our rapid fire questions, you have a busy job and a large family. What are the keys to managing your energy so you can be there for others?
1: Yeah. So this is it's top of mind for me always, right? A lot of my colleagues get caught up in the pace, right? And I say, guys, gals, treat this as a marathon. You can't start out at 5K pace and finish a marathon. So do enough, you know, in each dimension. And there are gonna be times when a project or a child or your spouse or another family member or a friend is gonna need a five K sprint from you. But you gotta know when to do that and know when to dial it down. And when you're doing that you've got to let the other dimensions know that I'm faltering here because I need to go spend time over here. To the extent you can recognize when that's happening and, and and understand what those different dimensions are and then do that effectively, I see far too many over-focus on one thing for too long. And sometimes that's necessary. You've got a family member with a long-term illness. I mean, I, you just can't get around that, right? But far too often I've seen colleagues just flame out at work or they do great at work, But as a result, their family falls apart or their health.
0: Sometimes it can feel like you have to be everything to everyone at all times. How have you done that where you've said, hey, I'm struggling in this area? Uh, My wife Erin would say, I don't do that well. And
1: she'd be spot on. I'm a work in progress Mm -hmm. that way. Let me put it that way. I think our general work culture allows this more. So I think we want to hear when people need help. Right. So I've been able to, at least at work, say, hey, I've got a thing. And I will say, as my kids became more active when they were younger, I was traveling every week and I said, I'm going to coach my son's basketball team. Mm -hmm. And that required me to be home certain nights early or not travel certain weeks. Now, at that point in time, I was already a partner Mm -hmm. or a principal in the firm. It's a little easier when you're the boss, but there are a lot of demands on someone's time regardless Mm -hmm. of what level you're at. So I've been fortunate to have in my career when I was younger good managers, good leaders, that it wasn't about when you were in the office, like, hey, here's the goal. Here's what's got to be done by a certain time. And then they kind of let you do it mm-hmm. and trust that I would stick my hand up for help when I needed it. And I've always carried that forward as well. I'm not, I'm not going to make you be in the office nine to five or this weekend. You know, It's up to you. I mean, I would encourage you not to because of the marathon, right? Work smart. Don't work a lot. All that to say, you, you got to recognize it and then just be willing to say, I can't do all this. Or I probably could do it all, but if I keep doing it all, my head's going to explode at the age of, uh, too young an age.
0: No, I appreciate you being so honest about it. It it is something that I struggle with. I feel I'm very good. I try to be at the people I manage is say, if they need time for themselves, if they have a family situation, like, yeah, whatever you need to do, like take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. If you need to be at your house for a closing or if your kid's not well, like take time, care for yourself. But then if if it's me who I've been working really long hours and I'm feeling run down and I just need sort of to come in at 10 o'clock to maybe like sleep in, it's nearly impossible for me to allow myself to do that. And I was mm. speaking to a friend of mine who's really wise recently and they said, you got to allow yourself to be human, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's going to be times where what you're encouraging other people to do, to do for yourself. Yeah. In a way, it's embarrassing how challenging that can be for me. <laughs> yeah. is, whereas, you know, I wouldn't question someone else who was needing to do That's it right. and it was the right thing for them. I'm certainly a work in progress yeah. in, that, in that way as well.
1: The phrase, uh, give yourself grace. I tell myself, my job is to work myself out of a job. Mm. And the only way you can do that is that you got to have people that will follow you up a hill. Mm-hmm. And you can't command that you can in the military, right? And you can as a boss, but not for a long term. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think that that, uh, there's a whole bevy of folks that would follow me up a hill, which makes it easier. And there are lots of people I've kind of pulled along with me and I'm saying, your job is to work yourself out of a job. Yeah. So focus on the next level down, right? And that person needs to focus on the next level down. Don't be afraid to work yourself out of a job. Mm -hmm. You're not losing control, you're actually creating more leverage.
0: What is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? Definitely the one I mentioned,
1: Halftime mm-hmm. by Bob Buford.
0: And what are some things you love doing
1: in your free time? I do like to work out. I'm not a nut about it. I like to cycle. I like to run when my injuries allow me to. Aaron's got me picking up tennis. I like to dabble at golf, so I'm active that way. I don't have a hobby, per se. I like tinkering projects around the house. One of our jokes in the house, I love going to the dump. <laughs> <laughs> I love
0: it. Kind of I, know, yeah, I love going to Ace
1: Hardware. You, know, yeah, like, know. Like, oh.
0: <laughs> you do you. That's funny. right? Yeah. Uh, if you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? I've always wanted to play the guitar. Mm. First of all, I love
1: anything acoustic. I like that kind of music. I used to be envious of the couple of the guys
0: in the fraternity that would sit around and strum the guitars just like you see in the movies, right? But I would love to be able to do that. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? As I mentioned earlier, a work in progress, slowing myself down.
1: And by that, it's hard to turn my brain off, right? Probably can't do that. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't have to come out of my mouth. Just remaining kind of open to hear the rest of the question yeah. or hear the question and before you have an answer, kind of like, are you really asking that? Or it sounds like this, right? Mm-hmm. That will serve anybody well, but mm-hmm. it's certainly served me well yeah yeah and again it's in progress
0: i once was working with a group of kids and we were talking about sort of impulse control and just like sometimes just wait five to seven seconds Mm -hmm. right you don't have to wait forever to reply or to act but sometimes just basically a breath like just yeah pausing before you do and it's amazing just that short little break what a difference it can make And what advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a similar career to yours? You know, the people skills far
1: outstrip Your technical skills, for me, it's been more one's ability to empathize, ask good questions, listen, understand that people are different, have strengths in different ways. So there's people with high IQs and there's people with high emotional quotients. You go down the list, right? And so try to understand people that way. That'll help you in any any profession, but certainly in one where you are viewed as a trusted advisor and you're solving their problems. I mean, in the consulting industry, that's paramount, I think, to to being an effective advisor.
0: And last one, what inspires you? One of the things that
1: inspires me to see what people do for their children, to see the extent to which one sets aside your own desires temporarily, right? I think watching those that model great behavior for their kids inspires me. Knowing how challenging (laughs) and rewarding having a child or four or six can be, looking around and watching all our parents here and what they do, to me, is is very inspirational. I've always had a soft spot for kids, I
0: guess. Well, Bob, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate you carving out so much time to to have a talk with me today. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for the time, as always. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.